Hello and welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd get slapped with a diagnosis of Tatarda. I'd get slapped with a diagnosis of Tatarda. Tatarna. Tartanopia. I'd get slapped with a diagnosis of Tartanopia if I saw that you missed this week's show. Planned giving for Eastern donors. Cultural and familial differences between East and West raise issues for planned giving fundraising. Vidya Murthy from Chloral LLC and Bassett Education India raises our consciousness. On Tony's Take Two, Scott Stein's new album. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. And by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT Infra in a Box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits. Tony.ma slash 4D. Just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. Here is planned giving for Eastern donors. It's a pleasure to welcome to Nonprofit Radio, Vidya Murthy. She is founder of Austin, Texas-based Chloral, C-L-U-R-A-L, LLC, and CEO of Bassett Education India. Vidya is a communications specialist, DEI specialist, and a specialist in cross-cultural training, boundary-crossing tactics, media relations, and interpersonal communication. The company is at chloral.co, and you'll find her on LinkedIn. Vidya, welcome to Nonprofit Radio. Thank you so much, Tony. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure. Glad to have you. This is a very interesting topic to me, of course, because we're, we're talking about planned giving, but in a culture that I am not acquainted with. So I've got a lot of learning to do from you. Um, before we go into the, all the cultural differences that, uh, that I, uh, I want to talk about, let's define the Eastern world for folks and for me, so I know what, what regions or what countries you know, we're talking about. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think that's a great place to start. I think uh, when we talk about the Eastern world, we're really talking everything that is east of Africa and east of Europe. So you're talking the Middle East, and then further on, you're talking China, India, Sri Lanka, uh, you know, all the way up until Singapore and Japan. Okay. All right. So it is, it's fair to lump Japan and India together in our in, in what we're talking about today. Yeah, and, and the reason yeah. that 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 I that I think it might be okay, Tony, is uh, you know when you look at it at a, at a granular level, is Alabama the same as California? No, not at all. But it is possible to paint all of America in broad strokes, and I'm going to try to use those similar broad strokes with reference to the Eastern culture, the Eastern philosophy. Okay, okay, and Middle East as well. You said yes, Middle East as well for sure. Okay. All right, so we'll we'll talk in broad strokes, and uh, you know, if I uh, 
if I transgress and say something, you know, if I try to draw a conclusion that's inappropriate, you will uh, you'll cut me off at the knees, right? I doubt that will happen, but yes. Okay. Now, <laughs> now, there's a, now there's a good chance you got a uh, you got a lackluster host uh, at best, so uh, you'll be sure to stop me if I draw some conclusions or something that you know it's just wrong, just dead wrong. I'll try okay. to chime in for sure. Okay, please, I'm counting on you. I'm counting on you to do that. All right. You got it. Uh, and I'll, of course, I will try not to make a, a fool of myself as well. All right. Uh, I usually not, succeed. Not happening. Not happening. I, I, yes. I, often, I often succeed at that. Uh, <laughs> just often. So patriarchy. Patriarchy <laughs> is very important. What do, what do we need to know about the, the role of men in, in these cultures? Well, again, with reference to, to broad strokes, I think uh, patriarchy is a, a familial structure. It's an authority structure uh, and it's an organizational structure. And uh, the power of the male voice is not something that can be uh, easily underestimated in the Eastern society. Um, I think that it has a significant uh, amount of both influence and control with reference to all kinds of decisions, of all kinds of personal and professional decisions. And I think particularly with respect to planned giving, um, I think the male voice kind of dominates those decisions in the Eastern world. Okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, more, more. I hope. Yeah, more to say. just one yeah. more point. Yeah, I, I, I also want to kind of set the context that in several Eastern cultures, um, the daughter in a family, uh, Tony, always gets married and leaves and walks into her husband's house and her husband's family. The son, however, stays back to carry on the family legacy and the family name. And oftentimes his wife moves in with him and his parents. Business decisions, personal decisions are all just continued, therefore, from father to son and generation to generation. So a patriarch passes on his power and control to his son. And like it or not, that's kind of dictates the preference for the male child within the Eastern family unit. Now, with everything we're talking about today, is this likely to be con uh, to be continued in uh, folks who have immigrated to the US? Uh, I think the Western lifestyle is, is so uh, powerful that it does seep through uh, the walls of uh, homes and it does tend to influence um, and bring upon Western influences into okay. Eastern homes. Um, I think basically the responsibility and the close-knit structure of the family does stay together, but our immigrants' uh, families, you know, living together with their sons and, and daughters-in-law in, in multi-generational homes, as is very common in the East, I doubt it. I doubt it because that's where work uh, takes folks, right? I mean, my son might work in, in, in California, and, and therefore he cannot continue to live with me. And, and so I don't see that system being perpetuated in immigrant families when they exist in, in, in Western worlds. But certainly the emotion is there. Certainly the sense of responsibility and the closer knit family structure is very much intact. And, and still male dominated, you, you believe, but still oh, so patriarchically organized, not, not physically organized around patriarchy with, with the with the, the wife of the son moving in. 
mm-hmm. so not physically lo- located, but but the the concept still prevailing. You think? Oh, absolutely. I think it does prevail, and I think that. While I say that, I must use a word of caution as well, because just as with every generational difference, you know, even in America, even amongst families here, there, there's a significant amount of difference in the last two generations. So yeah. I think we need yeah. to allow for that a little bit um, and, and, and know that, you know, there are going to be some families which kind of morph into more Western structures, but essentially at the core of it, uh, the patriarchal voice is a very important controlling, influencing voice. It sounds like the lesson is, you know, know know your donor and know know their family. You know, so we can we we're here raising awareness of what might exist in a in a in an immigrant family from from the east, um, or might not. So you know, for for fundraisers, you know, we can raise your consciousness. You need to be aware of what the what the dynamics are in a in a donor and donor family that that you you're, you're you might be talking to. Oh, absolutely, and I think that once you understand the nuances of the donor family and and whose voice is perhaps the loudest and what their key motivators are uh, for any kind of giving, I think then you are on the verge of being able to design an effective approach strategy. Yeah, well, of course, right. What what moves them, uh, you know, programmatic program wise, of course. But yes. uh, just in terms of, you know, where the decision making is. You might be talking to a female donor mm-hmm. who might actually be you know, uh, uh in a in a marriage where the, the, the husband makes the decisions around finance, as you were saying. Or right. you might not. Or it might it might be that the, the Western culture is more seeped in in that family. So that's what I'm saying, you know, just you want to know the dynamics of the family you're you're working with. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and and, and uh, while, you know, insight into that might be difficult, my my tip would be to pick up on a lot of nonverbal cues and kind of read between the lines when you're interacting with these families. Um, like what? you know, yeah, sometimes well, Oh, that's that's juicy. Okay. What are what are some nonverbal clue, clue, clues? Clues. For example, uh, you know, you approach the the home of the donor. You set up a meeting, and whether they see you in the office or you see them in their home, um, you'll get and pick up a lot of cues in it. So, for example, sometimes the wives may or may not even join the conversation, and and then you know instantly that you know who whose voice kind of dominates. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you might notice that you know as you walk into their office, you don't see their wife's office right next to his. Uh, you know, so you know that perhaps she's not engaged in that same line of work, uh, or you know the responses seem uh, seem to bear a certain unilateral authority, rather than saying, "Hey, I love talking with you. Let me talk to my wife, and I'll get back." Yeah. He might let's say, you know, "Yeah, let's do it. Done," and he'll sign up right then and there, or say no right then and there. So, so you can kind of pick up, and even when you're talking to the wife, she might, you know, say, this sounds great. It's a very important cause. I suggest you talk to my husband. I'm traveling. I'm not even going to be in town, but you can take it up with him, you know, and then you know that she's probably not part of the routine decision-making engine of the family. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. I saw on LinkedIn... Somebody defined crisis communications as 
applying to anything that's out of the ordinary, not necessarily something bad, just outside the day-to-day routine. And she used the example of dignitaries visiting her nonprofit. Obviously, delightful, wonderful, great opportunity. Um, I can see, you know, that sort of definition. But uh, because, uh, because it requires a crisis-level response, even though it's terrific, you want to make sure you, know, you get the word out broadly uh, leading up to it and, and during the event and after the event. And you want to have that messaging being consistent and on brand. And of course, you have to manage the event itself. Um, you want to tie in your own dignitaries, uh, like your board, your major donors, major volunteers, right? Folks that are your, your insiders. So uh, maybe call it a positive crisis. You could think of it as, as that. And uh, another example might be a major anniversary. Could be a positive crisis. So like your 20th or your 50th. This is all to say that Turn 2 can help you with communications for these positive crises. Great things that are happening that are way out of the ordinary, they can help you out with the the messaging around all that. Because your story is their mission. Turn-2.co Now back to planned giving for Eastern donors. You mentioned business too. Uh, yes. The the uh, I think you were referring to the son taking on the business of the of the father. Can you say a little more about that that prevalence? Well, a lot of the times, with reference, I think to to Indian immigrant families and to Eastern immigrant families here in the United States. Um, I would say that the fathers who moved here, let's say in the 80s or in the 90s, you know, they they worked tremendously hard, Tony, to set up these businesses, right? And and that's how they built better futures for themselves and their families. And so chances are that a significant portion of their children are looking at taking over these organizations that their parents have created. And along with inheriting not just the business, they tend to inherit the the culture and the organizational philosophy that their parents intended when they started the organization, right? So so they take it upon themselves as a matter of, of responsibility to continue to toe that line. And, and to be able to make sure that they are indeed perpetuating what their parents, most likely their fathers, intended. Okay, so, so there is a, a, a responsibility across the generations. No doubt. Yeah, okay. No okay. doubt. And that applies to daughters as well. You said you said no, children. Of course, Daughters, of yeah. course. There's numerous instances of of super intelligent, empowered women that have done magic with what their fathers or mothers have created, and and that's really heartening to see. And in fact, I know of several stories like that. And those are the encouraging ones that that I think a lot of other upcoming entrepreneurs and businesswomen look up to as examples. You. Uh... You mentioned when we were talking alone something about you know synchronizing generational giving. What 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 what's what's this about? 
So with reference to synchronization, I think when uh, Eastern families raise their kids, um, they are caught in a duality of uh, their original cultures and also wanting to adopt, adapt and fit into the Western cultures. So every household kind of creates a marriage between the Eastern and the Western worlds and picks values that they really try to instill and pass on into their sons and their daughters. They try to set boundaries on, you know, when they're really young, you know, saying this is what is acceptable to us or this is not acceptable to us. And they define and pick and choose which Western values can permeate through their walls into their homes. Mm. And by doing so, they try to sync up with their kids on their own values, what they believe in, their approach towards money, uh, their approach towards giving, towards contribution to society, um, and and values that, that they all follow in their personal lives as well in terms of whom you marry, uh, how you spend money, how you communicate with those around you and maintain a social circle. Along with all of these, I think for sure, you know, the the sense of giving back is also communicated and synchronized generation to generation. What can you generalize about the thinking around supporting charitable work? You know, I mean, it, in, in a lot of other countries, it doesn't even exist very much. But but here in the U.S., you know, what what can you what can you generalize about support to, to charity? What can I generalize? That's such an interesting question, Tony. Because uh, you know, uh, and this is in the Eastern world. In the Eastern world, if I were to draw generalizations, not here in the United States, but in the Eastern world, I would think that there are broadly three primary factors that drive planned giving. In the Eastern world, it could be one, a, a, a very heartfelt uh, feeling for the cause itself. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have you have philanthropists of, of various uh, economic uh, capabilities who are trying to do their part towards a cause that they feel passionately about. And that's the human drive, right? So, so that's common for everybody across the planet. If you can, you believe in a cause, the humanness in you calls out to you and you give. Um, in the Eastern world, a lot of planned giving is out of political pressure. And, and you do have to wade through, um, through a lot of murky areas uh, in order to navigate I think those regions because a lot of planned giving is very political in the Eastern world. And, and instead of, of a direct contribution to a political leader, he might say, hey, you know, can you build this park in this constituency or can we create an, a center of art in this constituency from, from his constituency? So it's, it's very politically driven. And uh, third, I think, is, is certainly the social status that comes with uh, being known as a donor for a visible cause. And the social status in the Eastern world earns you so much in terms of almost a, a demigod kind of a status, if you really? are that visible and if your donation is that visible. And I think in terms of generalizations, if I were to take these three and try to see if I can paint uh, the Western donors from Eastern heritage mm -hmm. in this same light, is it possible? I would say that 
Only two of them are probably more applicable. Uh, a small percentage of them, I think, would do it for uh, for political reasons, a very small percentage. But broadly, either they do it because they believe in the cause and they feel like it's their turn to give back because they've crossed continents, rebuilt their lives, uh, and, and now they feel almost a, a sense of social responsibility to give back. Mm -hmm. um, and also the second part that motivates them would be certainly the visibility in society to be seen as an immigrant who is successful up to the point uh, where they're being noticed for their philanthropic efforts. And and guess that's where, you know, the curve of life would take most uh, immigrants to be in a position of a visible donor, to be respected for it, to be acknowledged for it. Very interesting. So, you know, lessons for us in in stewardship and and public acknowledgement of the uh, public acknowledgement as a part of stewardship so that the person feels this and, and enjoys this elevated social status. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, when when you approach donors, you know, if you can um, if you can give them incentives for increased visibility. So if you say, hey, you know, we'll interview you and we'll put a link on our website or there's a plaque with your name on it or, you know, we will have this section dedicated to you and, and your name and picture will be visible here or we will announce this donation in this forum, whatever you can do or if there is a, a kind of a your book almost that that you can include them in and their name and photograph or an interview with them that talks about you know why they are giving to this cause and what their drivers were and make it a very personalized story that they can tell through you to the world um, i think all of them would be excellent uh, motivators for them to give you even mentioned the word demigod yes <laughs> in 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 their own culture yes being seen as a as a demigod oh Ooh. yes and that's a very interesting phenomenon and i think that's very pretty specific high, to the eastern world pretty high um, standing yeah, because, um, you know, organizations, the larger ones, especially if you take, you know, the Nagarjuna House of Business or the uh, even bigger Ambani House of Business back in India, you know, they actually have a day called Founders Day during which all the employees in the organization, literally thousands of them, they celebrate, you know, the, the founder's birthday. And there is a large photograph and there are garlands around it and people bow and there are flowers and they recognize his, his contribution, not just in founding the organization, but recognizing his philanthropic efforts. Um, sometimes, you know, they would go as far as not even wear slippers or shoes right up to the photograph, just like you would in a, in a temple. You know, mm -hmm. and that's why I call it the demigod status. And and it's not uh, artificial. It's not a put on. They really feel it from their heart. They feel like they owe their sustenance to this individual who started this organization 50 years ago or 80 years ago. It's time for a break. Fourth Dimension Technologies. Technology is an investment. You're investing in staff productivity because you know how unproductive folks can be when uh, technology is not doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, you're investing in security, obviously, um, donor relationships, because you're preserving uh, giving histories and actions, 
people's preferences, their own personal info, uh, their attendance at events. Um, you're investing in your organization's sustainability. So I hope you see tech as an investment and not an expense. And 4D can help you invest wisely. See how it all fits together. Help you make your tech investment decisions, doing it smartly. You can check them out on the listener landing page for help with your tech investing at tony.ma slash 4D, just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Scott Stein has a new album. I love it. You know Scott, of course. He's the composer of Cheap Red Wine, uh, the show's theme song. It opens and closes every single show. You know it. His new album is Uphill. I've been listening, and I'm uh, hoping that you will listen. I'm suggesting giving him a giving him a listen for the new album. My favorite song is the last one on the album. So even though he calls the album Uphill, he ends with the song It's a Good Life, which is the one that he premiered on the 600th show. Uh, and I love his lyrics like, don't just stick to what you know, let it fly and watch it go. Of course, I'm not going to bother trying to sing. Uh, you'll be grateful. You are grateful. Trust me. Uh, another one that I love from also from that song, uh, from it's a, it's a good life. No matter how you sing your song, there's always someone singing along. So, uh, you know, I love Scott. Um, I've been using his song for many, many years. Um, I'm enjoying his new album uphill. You can sample every song on the album. If you go to scottsteinmusic.com. So I'm asking you, please give give Scott a listen at scottsteinmusic.com for his brand new album, Uphill. That is Tony's Take Two. We've got Buku, but loads more time for planned giving for Eastern donors with Vidya Murthy. Let's talk about the something very concrete, the beliefs around the word death mm -hmm. death is uh is not a, not a good word yeah i think you know if you spoke to anybody tony in the in the eastern world um generally eastern philosophy i think it lends itself to the fact that words are very powerful and uh you know most spirituality or different kinds of religions i think they focus on energy and consciousness as opposed to um, a, a, a book or as opposed to uh, rules or commandments, right? That's what most Eastern religions are built on. So this is not just with reference to Hinduism, but it extends to, to Buddhism or Taoism or, or Jainism, where they believe in the power of words. So you, they also believe then that what you talk about manifests in life. So what you don't want to be doing certainly is, is approaching a person and saying, okay, so after your death, how can we ensure that this system of giving continues? Because that's just too direct for them. 
and it's too much in your face. And it's not something that I think people like to discuss openly, as factual as it might be, as certain mm-hmm. as it might be, they're very watchful with with using words in that context. So when you approach, I think, a a donor from the East, you really clearly want to stay away from using those kinds of words which talk about, you know, the terminality of life. You want to really talk about, you know, how can we, how can we ensure that, that what you're doing continues for the next 80 years? That's probably a better way to say it. And it's just a choice of words. Right. Okay. And that's very consistent with uh, what I teach folks about talking about planned giving, which is that it is not a death conversation. Although the word death may work its way in, you know, someone, mm-hmm. uh, uh, someone from the West may very well say, well, you know, I've already got my, my, my plans for my death, you know, laid out or, you know, they, they may bring the word up. Um, but your, your point is that, you know, dealing with someone from the East, you don't want to. Um, and again, that's consistent with what I teach, which is that planned giving is the 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 life of the nonprofit, the sustainability of the nonprofit's work and mission and values for decades and generations to come. Mm-hmm. And listeners may have heard me use that exact phrase, decades and generations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're not talking about the person's death, you're talking about the life of the nonprofit. The survivability mm-hmm. of the nonprofit. Okay. Mm-hmm. But interesting about just the word, you know, or around, yeah, the words death, dying, uh, you know, they should be avoided, which they, they don't really belong in a plan giving conversation to begin with, unless the donor brings it up. Sure, sure. Um, I'd just like to, uh, you know, throw light on, on two different aspects, and maybe this is an appropriate time, Tony, is I think when you are trying to um, uh, talk to and attract donors, um, one, I think the Western way of doing business is very transactional as opposed to the relational way of doing business in the Eastern world. Mm. And I think kind of softening the edges is uh, is a great place to to start. So uh, you know when you when you talk to a potential donor, maybe you can engage in some conversation about their family. Uh, maybe you can engage in in some conversation. You can ask questions about about what their kids are doing and try to paint and present the picture that you're not just doing this as a transaction between a donor and your organization, yeah. but rather this is a family that's committing because they believe in the cause and position it based on the relationship that you seek to develop with the family. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- these conversations are never the first time you've met the person. You know, the, these right. these conversations take place over time. You're, you're talking to folks who are already committed and loyal to the organization They've demonstrated that commitment and loyalty through their giving history, and uh, you know it's 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 a really of course as you're saying it's it's relational. It develops over time to to the point where you believe you know it's a good it's it's a a good time, the right time for an individual donor or family to raise the idea of a gift in their in their long term plans. So this this is never an opening. You know, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right in terms of just warming up to it and, and adding that personal touch 
And uh, because sometimes I think uh, the Western way of doing business, you minimize references to a person's personal life. And, and I guess what I'm suggesting is talk about that personal life more. Mm. Yeah, right. Okay. Getting to know the person, getting to know their family. Right. right. And, that, right. and that is going to happen over, over time. Right. Yes, right. over time, of course. Um, what else, Vidya? What, what, what would you like to talk about around this? Oh, yeah, sure. So I think, um, you know, I'd like to go a little bit into detail now, Tony, if it's okay with you to talk about the, the different kinds of family structures that exist. Mm. And, and uh, I, would you think that that's uh, an okay thing to talk about at this point? Yeah, please. I opened the door. Yeah, I'm not going to say yeah. no now. I, ju I just opened the door for you. Fantastic. Fantastic. So it. when I was researching this, I was very intrigued by this. And because uh, I don't think that uh, immigrant families here who have lived in the U.S. for generations um, are all uh, homogenous in their structure. And I went into a little bit more detail into finding out how are families organized here. And, and this is not my own research. It was something that was put out by Merrill Private Wealth. And they classify families as, as essentially five different types of families. And the first type are individualist families, uh, which are a lot of Western families as well, uh, nuclear units that, that function mostly in isolation. Um, then you have connected families. And connected families, um, they're very much nuclear units, uh, but they stay in touch. They might meet once or twice a year. Um, they might touch base once every few weeks. Mm -hmm. And those are, again, very similar, I think, to uh, many families here in the Western world. Uh, then you have the third kind of families, which are called tribal families. And tribal families tend to stay more connected um, and they tend to know what's happening in, in their daily lives. You know, so they might touch base certainly once a week and say, hey, what's going on? And, and even distant relatives stay in touch in, in the tribal family setup. Um, then you have economic families. And economic families, um, they own assets together. They might have a joint source of income. And, and family ec economics, I think, makes them one larger common unit. And, and the fifth kind of family is an integrated family where, you know, it combines the tribal and the economic structures. They're super close, um, and mostly patriarchal. And, uh, they have, the money flow tied into decision-making, tied into raising kids, raising multiple generations, and they all live under the same roof. And I think when you identify very clearly what kind of family structure a potential donor um, lives in, it might be very helpful to you and, and critical input to you as you device your strategy uh, for approaching the donor, okay. and just so you could align it, are we most likely to see folks from the Eastern cultures that we're talking about being aligned in sort of the last one, the the economic type family structure? 
Yeah, they're mostly either tribal families, economic families, or integrated families. Okay. And and you will find that, for example, if there's a family of physicians, um, you know, which is very common from the Eastern world, uh, you'll find that that you know certainly. They are tribal families. They stay in touch. They talk about money and business. Uh, they might own assets together. If they're three brothers, you know, they'd make joint investments. Um, they'd even make sure they support their nieces and nephews, not just their own children. And so when you approach these families, then it might help to have a broader strategy of visibility, not just for the person you're directly engaging with, but for their brothers or sisters as well. There are times of day that are better to talk about long-term planning and finances than mm -hmm. other times of the day in the cultures we're talking about. Can you flesh that out, please? Yes, that's an interesting concept. And, and if I may, you know, this is a kind of a personal story, uh, Tony, is uh, when we were, uh, when we used to live in, in India, and it was a multi-generational home, uh, we had four generations in the same house, mm. but the elders in the family would often discourage us from having either banking uh, counselors or insurance counselors in our homes uh, during the evening hours after 5.30 till at least 7.30 or 8 p.m. And the belief was that that, that is a, a pious time of the day when uh, when all goodness walks into your home. And it's probably not the best time to be sitting and having a discussion on insurance or giving or what happens after you die. So they would actually shoo away invest insurance agents who would knock after 5, 5.30. Now, no, no fault of the insurance agent, you know, they're just trying to come by your place because it's after work hours and they think that that might be a time that's good for you to, to talk to them because you're done with your work. So my suggestion is probably just during business hours is always the best to talk about, um, you know, plan giving, especially if you're discussing, uh, you know, what's going to happen with generations to come with reference to the giving mm -hmm. yeah and it nobody wants to sit in most eastern worlds talk about unpleasant things between five and seven in the evening okay yeah well planned giving is not unpleasant but I of course it's not I, I of course it's not but god forbid you know the word death kind right, of but we are well, we are talking about money and finance and and you you know you might be talking about rates of income from charitable gift annuities, or you might be talking about a gift from a life insurance policy. Right. So, again, you know, this goes back to know your donor, know the family, but we're raising consciousness here about what you might, what you might, uh, what you might face. So right. be aware, be aware. Yeah. All right. Can, um, um, sorry. You have something called the uh, answering the call of oneness from humanity. It sounds very aspirational. What is that? The Eastern world is a, is a very trying world, Tony, uh, in many places. Uh, there's a lot more competition for someone, I think, who has not seen what the race for survival is. It can be very humbling. And answering the call to, to human good, I think, is something that strikes at the very heart of 
many donors of Eastern origin in while they live, uh, work and play in the Western world. I think many donors are more inclined to give to a human cause that contributes, let's say, to, to children or to senior citizens amongst us or to those with, with physical challenges or, or mental challenges, something that improves humans and families and gives them access to better education, better futures. Generally, uh, again, broad strokes, mm -hmm. they tend to connect more with these causes as opposed to causes that, let's say, promote art or, uh, you know, if uh, or promote, let's say, automobiles or promote music even sometimes, you know, because they more relate. And many a time they are witnesses to to stories of struggle and, and success within their own families. They know how little their fathers came from or how little their grandparents had and what helped them. So they look at plan giving as a way to give back. And which is why I think human causes um, attract them more hmm. because they've seen poverty and helplessness most of the time from a whole another level than, than what is visible here in the West. Okay. Valuable. So, that, so I think I'm, I'm, I'm talking about what causes appeal to them right, more right. and the reason that it appeals to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, what else would you what What would you like to make folks aware of that we haven't talked about yet? Um, well, as I, as I think we continue this discussion, um, I would I would like to focus on some strategies that I think would be effective when you're reaching out. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you know to to it kind of touches upon some of the things that we've already spoken about, Tony. Yeah. But. Um, one, I think uh, the human angle is something that you should certainly reach out upfront. Point number two is uh, the social status that comes with giving. And three, be sure you talk about generational impact or the impact on the broader family structure, not just on the donor himself, but with the three, four, ten people that encompass his immediate family, which might mean his brother, her sister, um, her aunt, just a few more people apart from just that one individual. And okay. when you talk about generational impact, the human angle, social status, um, I think then, uh, and you're sensitive about, you know, who's making these decisions and who's calling the shots, I think you're really onto something in terms of being able to uh, make them want to give to your cause. Uh, let's flesh out that generational impact because that that sounds like something that may be a, a stretch or maybe I'm just not conceiving of it correctly. So uh, how can we, if we're talking about a long-term gift, a planned gift with someone, um, I mean, there are, there are planned giving methods that can include other people like mm -hmm. charitable gift annuities, charitable trusts, there could be value for other family members that way beyond the donor. Um, is that is that the kind of thing? You know, I mean, you're talking about. Like, are you referring to financial impact for siblings and and other generations, or are you talking about something broader than than a financial benefit? 
certainly broader than a financial benefit, Tony. I think what I'm what I mean is, uh, if you're looking at a charitable trust that encompasses the whole the broader family unit, which is yeah. very common in in Eastern families, uh, and I suspect in the Western as well, obviously. Uh, just because of its of the benefits or the financial benefits of having one, uh, you are talking about not just the the monetary component and the benefits through generations, but the the values that you're able to pass on from generation to generation, okay. and what you want your family to be remembered by, what you want your son to grow up and stand for, or your daughter to say, hey, you know, my mom did this uh, 20 years ago, and now I want to do it for the same organization and feel a sense of connectedness and pride. So you're passing on the emotion, you're passing on the value, and you're passing on the monetary commitment and the benefit. All right, all helpful. Okay. Um, what do you think? Should we, uh, should we wrap it up there? Uh, or yeah. is, there, is there something else? Is there anything pounding? And like, why didn't he ask me this question? Anything else you um, want to leave us with? Not that not that okay. anything comes okay. to comes to my mind, but okay. I think that um, you know just being sensitive to uh, to the cultural impediments of of fear, complexity, and inconsistency um, in terms of especially when you're reaching out to to first time donors. Um, I think that a lot of immigrants might be first time donors, and they might need a certain kind of education to uh, to say hey you know we would be honored this is uh this is the main purpose and this is the higher calling and if you're able to walk them through that um, then i think it makes it simpler for them it breaks down the complexity and it removes the fear of of having never done this before yeah and and like you rightly said everything doesn't have to be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars it could start small and and uh, and so if you give them the different options and the different that it's not you know an arm and a leg to begin with i think that is something that will mitigate the fear as well and again planned giving is never going to be the the first gift that you've asked someone to give so mm -hmm. you, you may start them you know you'll you'll they, they need to be committed already to the organization before you're opening the door to a planned giving conversation. So very mm -hmm. well, you know, as you said, you know, we might be introducing them with a hundred dollar gift or a thousand dollar gift. And that may be years before we get to a planned giving conversation, but the relationship has to be built. And um, I, I, I thank you for raising our consciousness, teaching me. Yeah. About some of the, uh, the the Eastern sensitivities around around a conversation that ultimately leads to planned giving, or might be talking about planned giving now because the person already is a committed loyal donor. But now you're talking about the next level of giving, and uh, we need to be sensitive to the Eastern uh, Eastern cultures, Eastern beliefs, structures. So. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hope that, you know, the listeners do get uh, a couple of tips that might help them approach uh, donors of Eastern descent yeah. um, and uh, also follow some broader strategies. Uh, but at the end of the day, Tony, as a multicultural specialist, especially, um, I think what hits me most is that people are more similar than we are different. You know, it's it's sure. just uh, slight nuances that vary. but 
in a, in a broader sense, I think what we all strive for, what we all want, our motivators are, are shockingly alike. Vidya Murthy, founder of Austin, Texas-based Chloral LLC at Chloral, C-L-U-R-A-L dot C-O. And you'll, uh, you can connect with Vidya on LinkedIn. Vidya, thank you very much. Delighted. Thank you so much, Tony. It's been a pleasure. Next week, the tech that comes next, that's the new book from Amy Sample Ward and Afua Bruce. They'll both be with us. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. And by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT Infra in a Box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits. Tony.ma slash 4D, but, you know, just like 3D, except they go one dimension deeper. And remember Scott Stein's new album. Please check him out scottsteinmusic.com Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff The show's social media is by Susan Chavez Mark Silverman is our web guy and this music is by Scott Stein Thank you for that affirmation Scotty and congratulations on your new album Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio Big Nonprofit Ideas for the other 95% Go out and be great